Thank you so much, worship team, and thank you all for your participation already here this morning. So grateful to have you. Well, hey, it's Easter Sunday, and of any Sunday at all that we're going to talk about the idea of hope, man, let's hit it on Easter Sunday. We've had this conversation before a little bit, I think. We've talked about the power of hope to change your life, the power of hope to change your psyche and your will, the power of hope to give you energy to do what you otherwise could not do. We've talked about that reality before. We even talked about how it changes societies and cultures, that there's something that actually is transformative societally and culturally about a people who have hope, about how it allows you even individually to push past places that other people would kind of quit on because you believe more than what someone else might believe because you have hope. We talked about that before, right? This is a good, good start. We talked about that before. Now, here's the flip side of hope. Hope can also be tenuous, right? Like hope can be hard to hold. Hope doesn't exist as a, um, an entity that I will have and hold and always keep with me just as quickly as I get it, sometimes I can lose it. You ever need to be encouraged again with words that you know are true? Ever need to be reminded of things that had been hopeful for you, but all of a sudden you're kind of lost to them? Hope is tenuous. And hope, when it isn't realized, disillusionment is. When hope isn't realized, disillusionment is. This is why for some of us, we know this is true by the way, this, this is why for some of us with New Year's resolutions, for example, we're almost afraid to set them. Because if I hope in the resolution and then I fail, then I'm going to be disillusioned in myself again. And I'd rather not have that, so I'm not going to set it again. Hope in a friend or a classmate or a teacher, right, who, who I want and I wish that they would do this. I wish they would be this kind of a friend. I want them to be loyal. And they turn. And they don't give you what you need. They don't respond the way that they should have. And disillusionment sets in. This happens a lot in dating relationships. If you're a serial dater, okay, this happens. When hope, maybe this next person, maybe he will finally be the one to sweep me off my feet. Maybe she will finally be the one who can grab my heart. Maybe. And then that relationship ends and disillusionment begins to set in. See, when hope isn't realized, disillusionment is. And when disillusionment sets in, bad things begin to happen. When disillusionment sets in, we begin to lose traction in our heart. When disillusionment sets in, we begin to do things like going through the motions. We begin to do things like going half-hearted. We begin to do things that we normally wouldn't do. For some of us, this hope might be job-related. For some of us, this might even be church-related. We can talk about that for a minute. For some of you, you may have wished or hoped that the church would do something for you. That you could find God or connect with Him through the church. And in one way, shape, or form, you've been disillusioned by that. And here's what we know. If that happens, what we end up doing is we start going through the motions. We just might come on a Sunday morning. We might just show up. We might just mail in our passion and just attend. But when hope doesn't become realized, disillusionment is quickly realized in its place. And here's one other thing to know about disillusionment. The next generation is never inspired by disillusioned people. Right? You ever hear anybody say, man, I lo look at that marriage. They are so passionless. They just go through the motions. They just live under the same roof. I can't wait to be like them. 
I mean, you ever hear anybody be like, you know what, I know that my uncle and aunt or my mom and dad, or they don't really like church, or they just go because they should go, and I know they go through the motions. I cannot wait to build my life around that. You know, nobody does that. Nobody builds their life around people who are disillusioned. So when hope isn't realized, disillusionment isn't. It's a dangerous thing. Now, let me talk faith for a minute. When your hope and your faith isn't realized, disillusionment in your faith can set in. When you are hoping that your faith will provide something for you and it doesn't, it is not hard to quickly become disillusioned with it. If you hope, right, in the Savior Jesus Christ who was buried and on Easter we say is resurrected, and you hope in that Savior to conquer the problems in your life, and he doesn't help you do that, we have a problem, right? So when you're saying, you know what, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to give him all of who I have, and your hope in him isn't realized, you begin to become disillusioned. You begin to feel like, man, I don't know if it's worth it. And you begin to feel like, I don't even know if I should continue believing what I believe. We just know this is the way disillusionment works. Now, with hope and disillusionment on Easter Sunday, you know, what a great up way to start this morning, right? We're talking about hope and we're talking about disillusionment, but here's the deal. On Easter Sunday, we have this, this message that Jesus, who is God, died and was resurrected. And you would think that if this actually happened, okay, if Jesus actually came to life, that that would be enough of an anchor, enough of a truth point that for generation upon generation upon generation, people would hold on to that and be like, whoa, like I can't give that up. If that is so true and so miraculous, like I would never lose hope in that reality at all. Like why would I? If you knew somebody, let's say I said, hey, in three days I'm going to be killed, but don't worry, I'm coming back to life again. Let's say that happened. What do you think you would do? Like, whoa. I might listen to what that guy has to say. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. If the resurrection of Jesus is so true, why doesn't it hold our heart's hope for a lifetime? Why doesn't it hold our hope for generations? Why is it that we who believe in Jesus sometimes will say, I believe in Jesus. Why is it that sometimes our hope can slip from something so profound, even as the resurrection of Jesus? And we know this is also true, that over time, we can begin to believe less about things. Not stop believing entirely, but just begin to believe less. And when we believe less, disillusionment sets in. So this morning on Easter, this is why I want to come back to this issue, because I, I want to speak with you about the nature of the Christian faith. And if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you, you are searching or you're just here because someone promised you something if you came or you're here because you know whatever you were invited especially this morning or you're listening online later and you're just not sure that's fine we're still you can just listen in and engage if you call yourself a christian i want to talk with you about this faith that that you and i claim to have and i want to tell you that this faith that we claim to have has has got to be life altering not just sunday altering Okay? It's got to be the kind of faith that is something to die for. It's got to be the kind of faith that is a courageous, full-on, heart-level belief and hope 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ that does more than simply say, hey, on Sunday morning you should change your plans and be at church. It has got to be something more than man just go through the motions, be dispassionate, just make sure everybody thinks that you're really you know, rolling. So for 10 weeks, we're going to be going through this series that we're simply calling To Die For. Because I believe the nature of the Christian faith is life-altering, life-changing. It is an absolute game-changer for your heart, for your passion, for your career, for your future, for your relationships, for your economic world, for everything about who you are and how you function. I believe the Christian faith is a game-changer, not just a Sunday-changer. And so for 10 weeks, we're going to talk about this issue of the nature of the Christian faith. And if you are trying to get a handle on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ, like what does it actually mean, okay? What is the framework I can think through? These 10 weeks, I hope to give you a framework to build on, kind of a backbone that you can build from. These 10 weeks, you can see in like three movements or three acts, if you're in the drama world, act one or movement one is going to be a three-part piece on who Jesus is. We're going to kick on to that today. The second act or the second movement is going to be about faith and the nature of faith itself. And the third act or the third movement is going to be the struggle with moralism and the religious kind of Pharisee piece that comes in right on the heels of all of this. We're going to wrap it up with a conclusion. We're going to use the book of Hebrews as our guide. This is essentially a study of that letter, and we're going to frame it up that way. So for 10 weeks, we're going to hit that. And I tell you, I love the way the author of the Hebrews writes, and I love the passion and conviction. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But here's what he writes in Hebrews chapter 10, 39. To me, a very key verse in the book of Hebrews. And he says this to the people that he's writing to. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now, Look at that verse for just a minute with me. Check out the contrast. He's like, it's almost like he's gathering the football team in at halftime and saying, listen, you're down 45 to nothing. If you want to mail it in, mail it in. But I'm going to tell you, gentlemen, we are not of those who shrink back and are blown out. Go play with pride. Like, this is not what we do. We don't mail it in. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but, and look at the contrast, but of those who believe and are saved. And so he's setting up belief as if it's this very courageous thing to have. Like, the easy thing is to shrink back. That's what most people would do. But listen, we are not of those. If you want to claim belief, know that that belief is to die for. That belief is courageous. That belief has got to be something in contrast to those who shrink back and are destroyed. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That is not who we are. We are those who believe despite everything and are saved. This is the passion of the author of the book of Hebrews. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. If you don't own a Bible or have one with you, no problem. There's one in the pew around you. And by the way, that is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad to have you take that uh, with you here this morning. Uh, that's, uh, that's a freebie. Happy Easter to you. And uh, we, we believe in the Word of God. We believe it's true and helpful for navigating life and understanding uh, the truth and the love of God. All right, so here we go. Um, this morning we're going to talk about one of the, uh, the key pinnacles of the Christian faith, uh, and that is this idea that Jesus is actually God. Now, 
What I mean by that is that Jesus is actually God. Isn't that profound? Jesus is, Jesus is God. Let me clarify that by saying Jesus is not like God. He doesn't resemble God. He doesn't sound like God. He doesn't teach like God. He doesn't look like God. He is God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. This is my starting point, the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Now, this author to the book of Hebrews, he's writing, and you need to know a little bit of what's going on in this story. Uh, The people who are receiving this letter from this author, um, they are in the middle of a struggle, okay? They are intimidated. They have been socially marginalized. They have been uh, abused. They are also people who are first-generation believers. Like, they, they have believed because someone around them told them, as an eyewitness to Jesus, that this actually happened. So it's like, I, in this world, if I see Jesus resurrected, I go over and I tell the Hebrews, here's what I saw. And they believe because of my eyewitness testimony. So in other words, they are not even, but sometimes one generation removed from the resurrection of Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. In the middle of all of this new faith that they have, these people are going through a struggle. They have gone through already a period of persecution. The local government has looked on them poorly and has imprisoned some of them, has taken some of their property, and has abused or tortured some of them. They've made their way through that, and that's difficult enough. Imagine if you went home and your property was taken because you came to church this morning. Your property is confiscated. You can't do anything about it. That's just the way it's going to be. You're a Christian, right? Okay, that's mine. That's what these people went through. So they already went through that, and they weathered that storm, and now they're continuing to hold on to belief, but the problem is the volume is being turned up on the social marginalization. It is harder for them to work. They are not making as much money. It is harder for their kids to go to school. They're getting pressured. They're getting shame on them in an honor-shame culture. And they're beginning to ask the question, is this worth it? Because when hope isn't realized, disillusionment is. Like they're beginning to ask, like, is it still worth hoping in this Jesus? And is this Jesus who he said we believed in really God? Because didn't he say he was coming back? And isn't it like implicit in the Christian message that if I believe that things should be getting better? Like isn't that just implied that that should happen? Because things aren't getting better. They're getting harder. We're getting persecuted. Our stuff is being taken. And we're being looked at with, with shame. Not honor. It's not honorable to be a Christian here. You're a loser if you're a Christian. You're a social outcast. You're laughed at. You're a fool if you're a Christian. So why am I hoping in this again? And so many of them began to cut out. Like, why continue to gather together? Some of them dropped off the scene. Some of them appealed by the, uh, you know, giving into the appeal of what could be theirs if they give up the faith, gave up the faith. And so this, this author to the Hebrews writes, and he writes a letter uh, to people in the middle of this, and he's, we don't know who he is, okay, but here's what we know about him. He's very pastoral in tone. He wants to teach from the Old Testament and draw in truth, but he wants to move to action. And he wants to move these people to say, listen, here is what is true, and if this is true, you need to react to it, you need to respond to it. And so he writes this letter, this letter that was meant to be read in the congregation in a house church in an area in which people are kind of trying to figure out 
what do I believe, who are dealing with this problem of a hope that was not being realized and the disillusionment that was setting in. And so he begins right away in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Here's what he says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now let's pause it right there. He's beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And again, he didn't have verses. Okay, He's just writing a letter. He begins at the, the starting point. Listen, Jesus is God. Like, if this is your faith and you're claiming that you believe, just let me remind you, oh, you who know the Old Testament, which they did, Jesus is God. Like, like check it out again here in verse, verse 2. In the... In these last days, excuse me, verse 1, he's going to say, in the, in the past, okay, our forefathers talked about Jesus, it, it, it talked about the Messiah, talked about the future, it wasn't clear, but verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, and like now it's clear. It wasn't clear then, and now it's clear because of Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Okay, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. You want to know what God looks like? It's Jesus. The exact representation of his being. And look at verse 3 continuing. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Like Jesus' word is deity. Who else but God spoke the world into existence? The author's attributing to Jesus the same characteristics. He sustains all things by his powerful word. That is a deity issue. He continues, after he had provided purification for sins, as if it's something like vacuuming the living room, you know, after he'd done that, he went to do something else. Like, who can do that? Who can provide purification for sins but God alone? It is deity stuff. Then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Like, who can do that except God and one with deity? So, verse 4, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Like, of all the spiritual beings, this one is superior. This is of a different nature. Jesus is different, and he's trying to just pound away at the beginning. Listen, if you believe and you hope in Jesus, this is who you're hoping in, someone who is God. Now, if that's not enough, he continues to quote the Old Testament in verse 8. He says, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. He's saying here again, listen, of the Son, Jesus, now I'm speaking, I'm referring to you as God, and Forever and ever your righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. And verse 10 continues. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Like, O Lord. Again, a reference to deity. Jesus, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. As if there's any confusion here, the author immediately wants to remind us, the one that you believe in, if you say you believe in Jesus, 
He's not just a good teacher. He's not just moral. He's not here to help us know how to be kind and patient. He's not here so we can color pictures about him. He's God, fully God himself. It's important, he says, to believe this. Now, he'll go on in this culture for the Hebrews to liken Jesus to a great patron, one who helps provide benefits for his people. Because in this society, there was a patron-client relationship, an honor-shame relationship, where a patron would be a wealthy, influential individual who would need, in order for social capital, would need people to be under him who he could benefit, who he could pay for and support. And people who were benefactors who didn't have as many resources as a patron would need to kind of come under the benefit of a patron so that there could be a cyclical honor cycle given. In other words, if I'm a benefactor or a a client, I sing the praises of the person who supports me. Like, I couldn't do it without you. You're so helpful. You're so kind. The patron receives the honor of that, and the patron in turn gets to boast about how many people that they are helping, how many clients they are helping. And you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Everybody wins. Honor, shame, culture. If you don't have a patron as a client, you're out. And if as a patron you're not helping people, you're not generous, and you're out. And so we want an honor, shame balance here. The people in the letter to the Hebrews did not have any patrons because no one wanted to patronize them, because they were Christians. They were out. In the letter to the Hebrews, the author says, listen, Jesus is your patron. He's the one who provides the real benefit that you're looking for. He's the one who gives you all spiritual blessings. He's the one to whom your loyalty goes. Now, You would think, as this letter is written to the people there who are just one generation removed from seeing Jesus come back to life, that the hope of the resurrection would hold the passion of our heart and the conviction of our heart to believe that Jesus is fully God. I mean, I I think I would believe that if I saw Jesus come back to life or if you witnessed that to me. But the reality is, over time, we tend to believe less rather than believe more. Over time, Disillusionment begins to set in when hope isn't realized. And over time, that's exactly what happened to the Christian church on this issue. We have begun to slip on what we believe about Jesus. In fact, just about 200 years later, just a couple generations removed from this, a major conflict blew up in the church. Now, at this time... It's only the Catholic Church that exists, the universal church. But there was a major conflict over the issue of who is Jesus. There was a young pastor um, who was very influential and growing his congregation. Great speaker, communicator, influencer. And he began to teach that there was a time when Jesus did not exist. There was a time when Jesus was not, is what he would say. And it all seemed fine and good until the bishop of the region in Alexandria heard this. And his name was Alexander of Alexandria, the bishop. And him being over this pastor, he said, whoa, 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 hold it. That's wrong. Cease and desist. You cannot teach that there is a time when Jesus was not. In other words, if you teach that Jesus is the first created being of God, then Jesus isn't fully God. 
And if Jesus isn't fully God, we are not saved. We have a problem. You cannot teach this. Thus began a major battle in the life of the church. And what was at stake was what will the church believe about Jesus for the generations to come? Will the Christian church believe that Jesus is like God, close to God, a highly created being? Or will the church believe, truly, that Jesus is fully God? Alexander the bishop said to Arius, the pastor, Arius, you can't teach that. Arius said, I'm going to teach it anyway. i got people who follow me. Alexander said, then I'm going to kick you out of your pulpit. Arius was like, try. And so he wrote an open letter to his followers, and his followers received the letter, and that his followers took his side. Of course they would. And they actually began chanting in the streets, there was a time when he was not. You know, I don't know how they did that, what kind of rhythm they had. Okay? But that's what they did. They began chanting that thing. And Arius, not only did he go to the people around him, but he also went to his friends who he graduated from seminary with. They became bishops in the neighboring regions, and he wrote to them and said, listen, here is what my bishop is saying. Alexander is kicking me out because I'm teaching this. So his friends, who he went to school with, put pressure on their peer, Alexander, to back down. Like, let him teach it. This is okay. Alexander wouldn't back down and continued to push. It became such a big deal that this became a national problem. Imagine that. A new emperor, Constantine, had just taken over. And he took over from a guy named Licinius. And Constantine comes and takes leadership. And Constantine doesn't want this deal in the church. Like, get it together, church. Okay, come on, get it, get it together. And so he sends somebody from his court to go deal with this issue and to just say, hey, listen, you go, solve it, come back, report how it goes. So his, his official goes to the region and tries to solve it, comes back and says, listen, Constantine, I can't do this, man. This thing is crazy. This... this Conflict has blown out of proportion. It, it can't be resolved easily. And so Constantine does something that has never been done to this point in the history of the Christian church. He calls a council together of over 300 religious leaders, Christian church leaders in the area. He calls them together to a little town called Nicaea in 325 AD. Constantine calls all these people together. Here's the irony of it all. These bishops and deacons and pastors are coming together in Nicaea and just years prior, for some of them just even last year, they were sitting in prison under the hard thumb rule of the Emperor Licinius who would have them beaten and whipped, mocked for their faith. And now the emperor is paying for them to go to Nicaea, to have almost a holiday at the, at the sea to get things figured out. What, what an irony. And for the first time, all of these people, all these church leaders are seeing one another you have to imagine this. In the history of the church, this has not yet happened. All these people are saying, well, you're from over there. You're from over there. You're from over here. And all of a sudden, the universality of the church came into the picture like, whoa, this isn't just me in my region. This is big. And because it was so big, the issue was also so big. Are we going to believe, are we going to be a church universal that is going to believe that Jesus is like God, is almost God? the first created being of God? Or are we going to be a church that believes that Jesus is fully God? Because whatever we decide is going to carry, is going to carry through the entire region and through to the entire world as we know it. It became a really big deal. And there was a lot of pressure and push on this, con this council. Okay? 
There we go. <laughs> so here's, here's the deal. If you would have taken an entrance poll, if you would have taken an entrance poll to people walking into the Council of Nicaea, almost all of them would have said, we believe Ares is going to win. Like, we believe that position is going to hold because it makes sense. And here's what happened. Eusebius, who was actually Arius' friend, got up to talk because Arius is only a pastor, not a bishop. He couldn't talk. And imagine this room full of 300-some people, some who'd been whipped and tortured and all that, and the church represented here. Big moment in the history of the church. And Eusebius gets up to talk, and he has tremendous confidence. He gets up there, and, and he'll essentially say that his belief is that you all will understand once, you, once I read my piece, you'll, you'll get it. So he begins to read. He begins to read his script. He gets to the point where he says, Therefore, Jesus is not God. He is a creature, albeit the highest created creature. And something, something pricked in the conscience of all of those leaders in that room. Something was like, this is wrong. And tide turned on Eusebius' speech, representing Arius' view. And the story will say that his speech was actually ripped from his hand under the cries of heresy, 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 torn in pieces and stomped underfoot. To say, no, guys, no, this cannot be what the church believes about Jesus. He isn't just like God. He is fully God. The net result of the Council of Nicaea, at the end of the day, the movement swung from Arius' position all the way over to saying, well, we cannot embrace this. This is dangerous for us to believe. And the Council of Nicaea created what they call a creed. Now, if you have Catholic background at all, you'll understand what creeds are. If you don't, you're like, what is a creed? Okay. The Council of Nicaea in 325 issued a creed, a statement meant to explain truth from Scripture. This creed has stood as the anchor point or the cornerstone for what Christians believe about Jesus for generation upon generation upon generation. The creed of Nicaea later clarified further with the creed of Chalcedon about 60 years later. The creed of Nicaea reads this way, and this is what they came up with in 325 AD in Nicaea. They wrote this. It's old language, but you can handle it. He said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, that is, from the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And it continues this way. Begotten, not made of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made both in heaven and on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation descended and became incarnate. You and I don't talk that way a lot. But what that language is saying, this Jesus is true God of true God. Light from light. He's begotten, not made. When you conceive of the Jesus you believe in, if you want to call yourself a Christian, if you want to call yourself a Christian, you say, I believe in Jesus, then you believe that he's fully God. As Jeff Bingham, my church history professor in seminary, used to say, if you want to believe otherwise, you can call yourself something, but you can't call yourself Christian. If you want to believe otherwise that Jesus is close to God or is similar to God or is like him, you can call yourself something and you can believe that, but don't call yourself Christian. 
That's not a Christian view. Christians, historically, believe Jesus is fully God. Here's why that matters, if I can press on you for a little bit. As C.T. Studd, the English cricketer, played cricket, wasn't a cricket, he played cricket, okay? He made this statement about Jesus being God. Because here's, here's why this matters so much. If, if you believe that you want to call yourself a Christian, you want to believe in Jesus, here's the starting point. Is Jesus God or not? If you want to call yourself a Christian, Christians believe Jesus is fully God, and there's implications of that. Here's what C.T. Studd said. He made this statement. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If, this is true, if Jesus is actually God, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Like, no more excuses. No more waiting. No more impatience. No more lack of forgiveness. No more half-obedience. No more mediocre commitment. If Jesus Christ is fully God, then no sacrifice of my will, of my future, of my plans, of my family, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. And look right at me. It's Easter time. God died for you. God died for you. Do you wonder where you stand with Him? Do you wonder if God loves you? Do you wonder if God cares? Listen, God in human flesh died for you. And if Jesus Christ is God, fully God, light of light, true God of true God, if He is fully God, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make. And so this Easter, if your hope has faded at all, if your belief has waned a little bit, if disillusionment or half-heartedness has settled in, we encourage you, Christians have a faith to die for. It stands up against those who shrink back and are destroyed. This is something worth dying for. Let me press into this a little bit more, and then I'm going to wrap it just in another moment or two, okay? Part of our leadership structure here at GPC is that we have an elder team that serves as an overseeing body for the church and for myself as well. Uh, those elders rotate out every certain, every few years. Um, so I, I'm going to ask them to trust me with this for a minute. If you, have, if you are an elder uh, or have ever been an elder, 
at GPC. And if you're married to an elder, and have ever been married to an elder, which I think is still the same category, okay? If you've ever been an elder or an elder's wife, could you do me a favor and just identify yourself now? Just kind of raise your hand, because I want people to see where some of our leadership is around the, the place here today, okay? If you've ever been an elder, or been married to an elder, okay? I want you, if you're sitting near them, just kind of know, see their hands, elders and elders' wives there, okay? Thank you. These are people who, if you have questions, what does it mean? What does it mean to begin to follow Jesus? Or, I want to take this thing to another level. What should I do? These are people who are ready to talk. They may not have all the perfect answers. I don't. But they're ready and willing to talk with you. Let's move. Let's do something. Let's live like we have a faith worth dying for. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the truth that exists within it. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to the cross and died for us. That as people who are, are coming to faith and beginning to understand what Christianity is and what Christians believe, that you would help us if our hope has slipped at all, if disillusionment has set in, if discouragement about our faith has set in at all, that you would remind us again that you loved us so much that God himself died for us in our place. And that in that death and consequent resurrection, that you give us new life and hope for what may be. So this morning on Easter, we stand on the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ the future hope that we have. We thank you for that. We recognize that. And yet today we also ask you to reinforce to us that if Jesus is fully God, then no sacrifice can be too great for us to make for him. Father, I pray that you would keep us from slipping out of that belief ever. That we would never slip out of the belief that Jesus is fully God. And inasmuch as he is, God has died for me. And so we thank you for the hope of Easter. And we thank you for the tremendous, costly love and grace of the gospel. Help us to do what we know we need to do with what we have heard this morning. And we'll pray it in Jesus' name.